0: You're listening to Healthy Living with Eric Sue Podcast, episode 174.
1: Are you feeling unhealthy? Are your kids not eating their fruits and veggies? There's a simple solution. Join Eric Sue in his free health webinar on Tuesdays where he reveals how to feel healthier, naturally, and immediately help your kids eat more fruits and veggies without chaos in your home. Visit www.ericwsu.com forward slash health dash webinar for webinar times and to register. See you there!
0: Are you a first time listener? Hey, welcome. My team and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you are a long time listener, we thank you for your continued support. Do us a favor and share this podcast with all your friends because they deserve this amazing content as well. Okay, now on to the good stuff you all have been waiting for.
1: Health tips one is the bite, no hype. Welcome to Healthy Living with Eric Sue, the show that inspires, motivates, and educates you towards your healthiest life. And now, your host, Eric Sue.
0: All right. So, welcome back to another episode of Healthy Living with Eric Sue. I'm your host, and today we have a veteran psychologist. Like I said, his name is Glenn Livingston, and we'll be talking about never binge again and overcome overeating. So, without any delay, let me introduce you all to Glenn. Glenn, are you ready to make it happen?
2: I'm ready to make it happen, Eric. I can't wait to make it happen. <laughs> Glenn, I'm all about making it happen. That's what I'm about.
0: Right. Glenn Livingston, PhD, is a veteran psychologist and was the longtime CEO of a multi million dollar consulting firm which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. You may have seen his or his company's previous works, theories, and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Indiana Star-Ledger, the New York Daily News, American Demographics, or any of the other major media outlets you see on this page. You may also have heard him on ABC, WGN, and or CBS Radio, or UPN TV. Wow, that's a mouthful. Glenn, can you share with us a little bit more on how you got started?
2: Well, um, yeah, I suppose the important pieces and parts are that I always considered myself to be a psychologist first and foremost, even though I spent so much time in business. I, I was brought up by a family of 17 psychologists and psychotherapists and um, social workers and psychiatrists and, you know, in... And, and, um, In my house, if something broke, we all knew how to ask it, how it felt, but we didn't really know what to do to fix it. So it was that much of a psychological household. That's kind of important when I get to the story later about um, how I went about trying to solve my own eating problem. Uh, But speaking of which, I had a very serious eating problem. You would diagnose it today as exercise bulimia. And what that means is that I am six foot four and reasonably muscular but um if if i if i exercised for two or three hours a day when i was a kid anyway i found that i could eat whatever i wanted to five six seven thousand calories was no problem you know two boxes of pizza um, a couple of boxes of Dunkin' munchkins lattes chocolate bars whatever i wanted to have and at the time i didn't think it was a problem at all i thought it was you know like doug graham says more like a superpower um But when I got a little older, um, when I was heading towards graduate school and starting to see patients and having to commute and I was married, it was just too much to maintain. And so I was working out maybe 45 minutes three times a week and I was getting fatter and fatter and fatter and my triglyceride levels were through the roof. Like, I have a test that says they're 826, I think, but... At some point they were over 1100 and the doctors just kept on telling me look you're you're gonna die by the time you're 30 uh 35 just about every man in my family had had heart attacks in their 40s and um you know they said you you got to take off the weight. you got to stop doing this but i couldn't because i was just so used to um this this pattern and i found that i would be sitting with suicidal patients or people right after the aftermath of an affair and very high risk situations. And I would be thinking, well, when can I go to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the, of the tray into it. And, um, being a psychologist from a psychological family, I went to every traditional route you might think of. So I, I figured it wasn't what I was eating at what was eating. It was what was eating me. And I, um, I went to psychiatrists and psychologists and and I knew some of the best people given the family that I was in and I grew up in and around New York City so there's no shortage of really good people to go to. Um, I went to Overeaters Anonymous and they all were helpful in terms of helping me to have a more soulful life. I really learned a lot about introspection. I learned a lot about forgiveness. I feel more compassionate towards myself, more compassionate towards my family. Um, I'm glad that I did it but I couldn't stop I couldn't stop binging because of it. Um, Around the same time, I I had married a marketer. So even though I was a clinical psychologist with a a couch and a couple of chairs in my office, and that's mostly what I was doing, I had a lot of time in my hands because we didn't commute and she traveled a lot. And we, um, we both started doing a lot of consulting for Fortune 100 companies, including a lot of companies in the food industry. And I knew how to run these big studies. So because I knew how to run these big studies, I learned an awful lot else that turned out to be relevant in in the consulting business. I decided I'd run one for myself. So I created a study, which was essentially a survey of people's eating habits, the foods they had trouble, difficulty controlling, and their psychology, personality variables, life satisfaction, work satisfaction, et cetera, et cetera. And I looked for correlations, what, you know, what was different about people that struggled with chocolate because chocolate was always the trigger food for me. I I ate pizzas and Doritos and Pop-Tarts and everything, but it was usually chocolate that was the first thing that like broke the seal and then I was off to the races. So I wanted to see what was different about people that ate chocolate and it turns out that what was different about people that ate chocolate was that they tended to have a higher likelihood of feeling lonely or heartbroken. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Um, at the time, I was in a not so great marriage, um, and I also went back and talked to my mom. And I said, "Mom, you know, you're a therapist too. Is there anything in my history that could suggest that, you know, I wrote a chocolate because I'm heartbroken or lonely?" And she said, "Well, yeah, actually, when um when you were a toddler, we were in the army. My dad was a captain in the army, and." At Walter Reed Army Hospital in, in Washington, D.C., and we were very afraid that he was going to get sent to Vietnam, so I'm kind of dating myself, but you can tell from the gray beard and the gray hair that I'm not a spring chicken. So, yeah, so she said that because she was overwhelmed, and, and her father was missing, for about nine months her father was missing, my grandfather, she was overwhelmed and kind of depressed. And she said when I would come to her crying or hungry, she just didn't always have the wherewithal to feed me or hug me or love me. So she kept a bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in a little refrigerator on the floor. And she said, go get your Bosco. So I'd come crying to her and then she said, go get your Bosco. And I'd go suck on the chocolate syrup and go into a sugar coma. And um, she didn't have to worry about it. And... I thought, Eureka, this is it. This is, this is why I have the problem. This is the match that struck the fire. Mm-hmm. But it turned out, now, it, tur- it turned out that that didn't actually solve the problem. Um, the reason it didn't solve the problem was because there was this little voice in my head that said, I'm not schizophrenic or anything, don't worry, but you know, it's the same way everybody has these little things that they say to themselves. There's this little voice in my head that said, hey, Glenn, you know what, you're right. Your mama didn't love you enough. And that's why you're addicted to chocolate. But you know what? Until you can figure out how to fill that loneliness and go out and find the love of your life, you're just going to keep on binging on chocolate. So go get us some right now. Yippee, let's go do it. And it almost used it as an excuse to binge more. And I found very similar things when I worked with my clients. Um, For example, in the study, I found that people who binged on salty, crunchy things Tend you know, pretzels and chips and things like that, they they tended to be very stressed at work. And people who binged on soft, chewy things tend to be more stressed at home. And they had these little voices in their head also, once we figured out what those memories were, that said, hey, you know what? You're right. We're so stressed at work, and until we get that man's boot off of our neck and get our independence and freedom and a job that we love, we're just going to have to, you know, keep looking for love at the bottom of a bag of potato chips. Yeah. And... Yeah, and and so around the same time as I was interpreting the results of these studies and kind of putting this together, um, I ran into a guy named Jack Trimpey, his literature, I never met him, um, at Rational Recovery, rational.org. And he had an alternative model of addiction. And that was important to me because I was in Overeaters Anonymous at the time and I was trying to get out. um, Because it wasn't really, it worked for me in some ways, but then in other ways it really didn't. And I felt like it was making things worse. And what he said about addiction, he works mostly with drugs and alcohol, from what I can tell, he said that, look, you can't, trying to love yourself and comfort yourself well out of an addiction is the wrong approach, because the model of addiction that really works in our anatomy is that there's the lizard brain, and it's it's the Mm -hmm. kind of the brain stem, the part of our anatomy that evolved first. And when the lizard brain looked at something in the environment, it says, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? Mm. Eat, mate, or kill. There's no love here. Mm. There's no concern, tribe, or others. This is just eat, mate, or kill. Then the limbic system or the mammalian brain evolved above that to connect us to other people and, you know, give us all these very strong emotions and these these bonds that we're used to. Um, and then on top of that is the what we think of the, as the human brain or the neocortex, which is where long-term goals and aspirations live. That's where strategies and plans live. That's where you know, spirituality and music and creativity and art and everything that we think of as uniquely human and contributing to society lives here. But what's important is that um, the later evolved portions of the brain are superior to the previously evolved portions, which means they have the ability to inhibit it. So all this notion about that we're powerless over the impulse and we can't quit it if we want to quit. And a lot of the stuff that the addiction treatment industry tells us it's not really true, which kind of makes sense when you look at the statistics of the addiction treatment industry has really poor record on creating permanent abstinence. It just doesn't happen. Um, I, I think the only two scientifically controlled studies Suggested or semi-scientifically controlled studies suggested that the outcome was at parity or worse than doing nothing at all for Mm -hmm. alcohol anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said, rather than loving this thing, what we need to do is separate from it and almost disdain it. So at the moment of impulse, you don't want to, you know, if you're standing in line at Starbucks and there's a big hairy chocolate bar at the counter, Mm -hmm. you don't, and there's a little voice in your head that's saying, Hey Glenn, you know, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and a yeah. cocoa bean grows in a plant and so chocolate is a vegetable. Yeah. If your time is, oh, I must not be loving myself enough, you're just going to open yourself up to this thing. and It's going to mm-hmm. run roughshod over you. Mm-hmm. You want to go, wait a minute, that's that sociopathic lizard brain in my head that doesn't care about my goals. It doesn't care about my relationships. It doesn't care about the kind of person that I want to be. Um, I know where this is going. I've been down this road before. Screw it! I am not—I am not my lizard brain. I am a human being, and it—it gives you that extra microsecond that you need at the moment of impulse to remember who you are, to wake up, and make the right decision. Um, So here's what I did. This is kind of embarrassing. I had to make a lot of modifications to use this with food because, you know, uh, drugs and alcohol are things that you can give up entirely, but um, food is something you have to take out of the cage and walk around the block a few times a day.
0: Cool. Make us so, laugh, Glenn. Make us laugh.
2: <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm trying. Okay. Well, it's a little embarrassing because I'm a, like a sophisticated psychologist who did tens of millions of dollars of consulting and everything, but but um, you know, in the end, this is what worked for me. I said, this thing here, I'm going to call it my pig. This is my inner pig. And this is a mental construct. I'm not talking about real pigs. Real pigs are very sweet animals. They need our help. Um, I personally don't eat pigs, but this is a... um this thing is gonna be my pig. I'm gonna draw a line in the sand, a very clear line in the sand, a rule, not a guideline that says, I never eat chocolate on a weekday. I'll never eat chocolate on a weekday again. And then on the other side of that line is going to be the chocolate itself or the pig slap. When I hear that voice in my head that says, you know, chocolate's really a vegetable, that's pig squeal. And I don't listen, I don't eat pig slap, I don't listen to farm animals tell me what to do. That paradigm, is what fixed things for me. Not mm-hmm. instantaneously, I had to do a lot of experimenting and you know, kept a journal for a lot of years and I figured out a lot of the crazy things the pig would say. Um, and I never intended to write a book about it. I never intended to go public about it. I was just trying to stop binging because binging really took 30 years of my life away. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gave me back control. And you know, I learned how to forgive myself fairly quickly if I made a mistake. I learned how to spot all the crazy tactics that the pig was implementing and um you know slowly but surely i became more present and mindful with food and then i started working on it with my with my clients and um started coaching a lot of people and then um i guess it was in 2015 i was a minor partner in a publishing company and the ceo asked I told him about this and he said, that, that's a book. We should write that into a book. And I said, no, people are going to think I'm nuts and I'm not going to go out there and talk about that. And um, he said, no, no, Glenn, it's a book. I want you to write it. So I wrote a book. I sent it to him. And um, he said, well, this works for me. I'm not having cookies anymore. Mm. And I said, okay, let's publish it. And now it's the number one usually for reading disorders on the Kindle and um, like number two for weight loss. And it's it's pretty amazing.
0: Awesome story. Wow. That is um, going to change a lot of people's lives, isn't it? What What you just said there regarding the the paradigm shift is is that kind of the the main key.
2: That that's the main key. Everything that people are trying to do to overcome overeating usually involves loving themselves more, but it's not loving to allow yourself a little bit of poison in your diet. You know, it's it's not. So there's there's that, and shifting the paradigm to realizing you have to distance yourself and take control of your lizard brain the same way that an alpha wolf would growl and snarl at a challenger, mm-hmm. you know, trying to vie for leadership position, mm-hmm. you have to assert dominance and recognize that no, you are the alpha, not, not your lizard brain, you're the alpha, and you're going to say what you eat. And, you know, it's, um, it, it kind of works like, you ever see these kids in the mall? And they're saying, mommy, can I have candy? Mommy, I want candy. Mommy, I want candy. And the parents try to say no, but the kid is just relentless. Mm. And eventually the mother gives in and she doesn't realize she just reinforced the behavior. So the kid now is going to work harder to get candy the next time. It's kind of like that. If you don't give this thing candy, and if you kind of snarl at it and say, "You know, don't you dare ask me for candy again, eventually it stops asking. Eventually it gives up hope and it just stops. And by the principles of um, neurology, by, by neuroplasticity, when your brain is trying to get reinforcement and it's not forthcoming, it's gonna look for reinforcement elsewhere. And see what's what's really happened is um, Jack Trimpey calls it a biological error. Your, your survival drive has been hijacked. Mm. See that there, there were no chocolate bars on the Savannah. We didn't have we didn't have Doritos in the tropics, right? We didn't we didn't have, you know, chips and pastas and bagels. And I'm not saying people can't eat these things if they want to. And I work with them. My my plan is entirely diet agnostic. So whatever you want to eat is up to you. But I do want you to understand, because I was consulting for a lot of these companies, that there are billions of dollars that go into uh, developing these hyper palatable concentrations of salt, and fat, and sugar, and oil, and excitotoxins, and mm. the whole purpose of which is to stimulate your pleasure buttons, give you a dopaminergic hit that you're not prepared for, mm. and there are a whole bunch of studies in, mm. in, um, in the 1960s and late 50s, Milner and Olds, I think, were the psychologists that started them, which showed that in a mammalian brain, when you short-circuit the pleasure center, like you, you, you insert electrodes into the animal's pleasure center in the brain, you give them a button that stimulates that pleasure center, give them their own little dopamine hit, they're going to forget about their survival needs. I mean, a starving rat is going to press the button thousands of times a day instead of eating. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, rats that are nursing their their babies, like a very primitive survival instinct, they're going to abandon the babies to go push that button thousands of times a day. Uh, Short-circuiting our pleasure systems results in self-neglect. And so I, I, I realized that that's what was happening. There's you know billions of dollars that goes into making these substances. Then there's all this money that goes into big advertising. Most people think advertising doesn't work on them. But the truth is that when you think advertising doesn't work on you, your sales resistance goes way down. So the industry has you exactly where they want you. Then they can send you five or 7,000 messages about food every year and, you know, how many of them are about eating more whole fruits and vegetables, like almost none.
0: <laughs> right, right.
2: Right. And then the addiction treatment industry says, well, you can't resist even if you want to. The best you can do is abstain one day at a time. You know, you're, you're powerless and you have to rely on people who are also powerless. And um, so I don't think that people should be ashamed. I think that they should be angry. I think mm-hmm. that it's kind of like in The Matrix. Mm-hmm. You know, do you want to take the red pill or the blue pill, Keanu, mm-hmm. which... Do you want to wake up and see what the machines are doing to us? Um, so I think people should be angry, and the best defense is um, – well, I, I should shut up and let you ask some questions. Well, next- well
0: if, if anything, I, you, I probably have a few uh, listeners who are like, wow, uh, what's, what am I supposed to do? What's the first step? And um, is it just getting better with my self-talk? Or, what or is the first step?
2: It's, it's more than the self-talk. It's, it's more than a self-talk. It's a very practical step. Um, the first thing that I do when I work with people is to ask them, what's the single worst trigger food or behavior for you? For me, it was chocolate, right? Mm-hmm. So I made a line on the sand about chocolate. Personally, I will never eat chocolate again. I, I just don't have chocolate at all. But I I said it like I will never have chocolate during a weekday because I don't want people to feel like they have to give it up. Mm-hmm. Um, you can make conditional rules. I will only ever have pretzels again at a major league baseball game. Um, You can make rules about what you'll always do. Like I will always put my fork down between bites or I will always take Mm. three deep breaths before a meal. Um, You can make rules about what you can do in an unrestricted way. I can have as much whole fruit as I like at any time, provided there's no sauce or processing um, or as many leafy green vegetables as I want to. Um, And and so you've got never always unrestricted and conditionals. Mm. But you you want to think of a rule, one rule to start with, that would draw a very clear line in the sand mm. with no ambiguity whatsoever in it. So mm. what I mean by that is, is if 10 people were to follow you around all day and ask themselves, did this guy do it or not? Did this gal do it or not? They would all agree. So people could follow... When I say I will never have chocolate during the week again, people could follow me around all day and, and they'd all agree whether I followed that rule or not. Mm. If I say... I'm going to eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full. That's a good guideline. But if 10 people follow me around, they're not going to agree. There's too much ambiguity there. Mm-hmm. And there's too much subjectivity. And the pig takes advantage of that subjectivity. It'll say, oh, you're hungry, baby. Believe me, you're hungry. Mm-hmm. Or I don't think you're quite full yet. You're not really full yet. Yeah. See? So that's a guideline. It's not a rule. Got it. Uh,
0: well, let me yeah. ask you this real quick here. It's sort of like you probably have heard people say they've tried everything. And for some odd reason, whatever they tried, it's never really helped them stop overeating. And, and so what do you say to that person?
2: Well, I tell them that that's their pig talking. Hmm. And you don't have to call it a pig. You can call it your inner slacker or your inner B-I-T-C-H, or just as long as you don't think of it as a cute pet or something you're trying to nurture. It's, a, it's an ugly thing. It's a, it's a visceral, ugly thing. What I tell those people is that that's a version of a pig squeal that says it's always been like this in the past so it must always be like that in the future see the rest of that squeal is that the pig is attacking their character and saying you're not the kind of person who can beat this you're never going to be able to resist a binge indefinitely so you might as well just go ahead and binge 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 see and that that whole cognition that whole thought in and of itself is binge motivated once they recognize that, they can start to let it go and consider another another option. Um, Carol Munter taught me that it's very difficult to continue to binge if you refuse to yell at yourself. All of those all of those negative thoughts in your head about the mistakes that you've made they're an addiction in and of themselves because those negative thoughts are actually part of the justification to continue pursuing short term gratification intent instead of longer term goals and aspirations. Um, So Wayne Dyer has an analogy or a metaphor. I I got detention for English in the fifth grade, so I'm not sure which one it is. Um, he's, He's got a metaphor about a boat, like if you're in a motorboat and it's on Lake Michigan and it's gone 10 miles in the same direction and you look behind you and the wake extends as far as you can go in that one direction does that have any bearing whatsoever on the captain's ability to turn the wheel? Mm. And the answer is no. Just because you've been going in one direction for a long time doesn't mean that you've lost the ability to turn the wheel. Mm. Um, It doesn't mean that you're broken. Like unless you've had some type of a brain disease, um, and I know a lot of people say, well, overeating is a disease, but I don't really see the evidence for that unless, unless there's something wrong with your ventral medial or ventral lateral hypothalamus, which is pretty rare. Um, I mean, there, there are a couple of medical conditions, but it's very, very rare. You, you have not lost control of your hands and legs and arms and mouth and tongue and nose and wallet. And you, no one has put a curse on you, which compels you to eat all this junk food. You haven't been kidnapped by aliens and force fed. You know, no matter what you ate five days, five hours or five minutes ago, you have the ability to what, decide what goes in your mouth from now on. You absolutely do.
0: So really, you're saying yeah. that everyone has the power to um, control this, um, this, uh, this feeling to eat, right? This, this, this urge to eat. They all have this control. We,
2: we all have that control, Eric. We do. It's, it's a matter of neurology and millions of years of evolution. We, we have the ability to resist virtually any impulse. Um, one of the examples Jack Trimpey points out is how could the monks... In Tiananmen Square, walk into the square and set themselves on fire and sit there and let themselves burn. It goes against every survival instinct there is. What stronger physiological instinct could there be than to get away from that? But they overrode. I'm not suggesting that anybody does that in any way, shape, or form. Nobody burned themselves. (laughs) Um, But it shows that when you make a character decision, and there's something that's important to, enough to you as a matter of character, as a matter of the kind of person you want to be, the kind of statement you want to make on the world, the impact you want to have, that we are capable of resisting any impulse. We do have the power.
0: Just real quick here. I, I know that uh, we're getting close to the end of this uh, 30 minutes. I, I'm i wondering if, if you could say anything to moms, parents, dads who have kids uh, in that age group who kind of sneak food, overeat, slash, you know, don't know when to stop?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, like Gandhi said, be be the change that you want to see in the world. Um, I I used to be a family and clinical psychologist, and the thing that I saw more than anything else was that kids will do 80% of what you do and 20% of what you say. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, stop trying to have the argument in words to tell them what they should do. Um, Try to get control of everything yourself. Um, Let them see your health improve. And then, you know, slowly starts to substitute healthier things for the things that they're having. So instead of a milkshake, try to make a in like a a smoothie with bananas and non alkalized cocoa and you can actually even throw in some spinach or they won't even taste it it gives a little bit of a texture but it's so much better for them than the hydrogenated oils and um, you know animal fats and things that are going into a milkshake in, in the world um, st- start to make healthier substitutions talk about your health um, show them how much energy and how much more fun you are when you're eating healthy let them have that positive identification and lead by example rather than trying to argue against them.
0: I I, I see that modeling is definitely the key word there (laughs) to model that lifestyle that, that um, they're hoping their children live to be healthy and so forth. Right.
2: Well, yeah. And, and you need to tell yourself that sometimes the best you can do is plant a seed. And so if, if, if you're doing nothing else besides giving them memories about, you know, mom was not doing so well and then she got onto this new diet. That, that's why I'm, that's why, by the way, I'm. again, my diet is, I'm, my book is very diet agnostic. I help people on all types of diets. But personally, I'm a vegan because my mother had ovarian tumors when she was young and she was told to go on a vegan diet and they went away. And then she went back to them and she struggled with ovarian cancer later. She went back to eating meat later on. And, but I always wish that she had stayed a vegan. Um, so she plant- Now, I wasn't a vegan at the time. I thought it was too much. I really argued with her about it. Um, I didn't become a vegan until graduate school, but I had, that, I had that seed planted in my mind. And sometimes that's the best you can do is plant those memories.
0: Mm, very good. Excellent. Um, like I said, we are getting to the end, and uh, I wanted to make sure that people know how to get a hold of you and what your, your new book's all about or book's all about. So if you could share that, that'd be great.
2: Well, the, the book was originally the journal, and it was the totality of the squeals that I fought and how I managed to dispute them and learn to ignore them. Um, it's basically a blueprint for taking control of your mind and separating your constructive from your destructive thoughts about food so that you don't have to binge again. The book is called Never Binge Again. Um, I can make it available to your listeners for free if they go to NeverBingeAgain.com. The the electronic versions, the Kindle version, the Nook version, or the PDF. Go to NeverBingeAgain.com and sign up for the free reader bonuses. The benefit of doing that also is, and I'll get you a copy of the book if you do that. The benefit of doing that also is that um, this is a very uh, harsh theory in the abstract, But when you see how it's actually implemented, it's actually very compassionate. And so I recorded a whole bunch of coaching sessions, full-length coaching sessions, podcasts, if you will, that you can listen to to see how this is actually implemented and how much power and hope and enthusiasm it it restores. The last thing you'll get, so I'll give you a bunch of those. And the last thing that you'll get is um, a copy of my food plan starter templates. So no matter what diet you're on, paleo, low-carb, high-carb, vegan, vegetarian, point counting, calorie counting, whatever it is, we created a set of rules that you might want to start with. It's very important that you don't take them de facto. Like, Don't let me tell you how to eat. You decide how you want to eat. Otherwise, your pig is going to eventually say, oh, the way that Glenn set this up doesn't work. Glenn's diet doesn't work. you got to go find another diet guru. But until you find the right one, you know what we're going to do. We're just going to go out and binge. So um, neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red reader bonus question reader bonus button. Sign up for the list and we'll get you a free copy of the book, the coaching sessions and the free starter templates.
0: Very good. Excellent. Um, Amazing info. A lot of uh, nuggets, I think, for people to take and use to improve their health and never binge again, as you say. So I really appreciate that information. Uh, Would there be any last piece of advice or anything that you wanted to share?
2: Well, it's a lot simpler than you think it is. In our culture, people think that overeating is a very complex problem. and for some people it might be, and i I can't tell you not to go for treatment or I can't offer I can't offer this advice as a psychologist. I'm really offering it as a coach and an educator because a lot of what I say is against the standards of care for my profession. They'll, they'll tell you to eat everything in in moderation and learn to you know eat intuitively and be present. and that's really where the profession is more or less um but i think it's simpler than that personally i i think that all you have to do to never binge again is never binge again i don't i don't think you have to sit by the river and meditate on your navel for months i don't think that you have to smack yourself on the head with a spatula I, I think all you need to do to never binge again is never binge again and um you know like jim rohn said a life of discipline is better than a life of regret mm,
0: very good i think we'll end it there um glenn very very good like i said I'm so glad you reached out to me, and I'm so glad we were able to do this podcast slash Facebook Live. And uh, I will definitely um, let you know um, if others are interested in more about you. So I appreciate it.
2: Okay. Thanks, Thanks, Eric.
0: All right. Bye-bye.
2: Bye. Are we done?
0: And we are off. Yep. Okay. Good. All right.
2: Is that what you needed? That's it. Okay, man, I'm gonna run then. Okay. I Let that. me know when it's out up.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today on Healthy Living with Eric Sue. Head over to EricWSue.com for full recaps of every show and Eric's health and wellness blog. Your healthy living life is waiting for you. So stay active and be safe.